Welcome to this uh, monthly meeting of our seminar. You may not realize that you're now part of the History of University Life University Seminar, which uh, uh, is in its, its sixth year, and now it's very nice to work with uh, University uh, Sydney Ideas with one of our seminars opening out a, a broader topic, and I thank Meredith for giving us uh, this linkage. It's traditional in our university that we acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation for public events, and I do so today with a special feeling, because I think these are very intolerant times, and I think uh, it's important that the university stands for that kind of inclusivity. So we say it in a more than formulaic way today. Welcome to the special audience from all of us who are the, the organisers of the seminar. Julia is here with me. Uh, Jeff is hiding somewhere. Jeff Sherrington... One of the older, and I think I spotted uh, Tamsin, Tangent Pitts, there we are in the middle. So the, the four of us are the little cooperative group that, that run our seminar. So, but we're delighted to see some other members of the regular seminar here today. Um, good that you're with us, and we look forward to seeing you at the other events that are planned. But also to welcome colleagues from across the university for a topic like this. Some of these issues may be, you're, you're so young that they're new to you. Some of us are so old that it's like yesterday, and uh, we feel that we've, we've lived in the shadow of these changes for a long time. But it's really, very good to see a number of colleagues. Noel Hush and I were just chatting away about the times that we supplement. We used to often compare in the staff offices, and Murray Wells is here, my old mate from days ago, and a number of others I recall from days when we were pre-Dawkins, that's something, and then we were Dawkinized, and then we t worked with the, the consequences thereafter. The topic today is broadly the transformation of uh, the higher education system reforms and how they impacted on the university. And our, our paper takes the unusual form of a scholarly book launch today, a book by Julia Horn and Stephen Garten, which looks at the uh, University of Sydney and the Unified National System of Higher Education, 1987-96, to 96, and is published by Melbourne University Press, and is, of course, available now online, and in all, all manner of other ways. And, and in the back of the room, so the blue book has arrived. It's part indeed of a, it's part of a suite of studies which is looking at these major changes in public policy, the impact on education, and there are a series of case studies. So there's a central volume which uh, uh, deals with the, the reforms from the administrative end, but also then there are studies of four universities, yes, and they'll be each be a separate volume. So you'll get top down, bottom up, and, and the composite picture I think is going to be remarkably useful. Um, our format today is, is to invite our authors, Julia and Stephen, to speak um, about 10-15 minutes each, um, or more, more wisdom, and then after that to open it to discussion and very much to treat this as a seminar. We hope there will be lots of questions and discussion. We'll leave time for um, that space. To get us going, I thought of just a few reflections on our topic as we, we move into it. The first one is a, it's a personal one. It's to do with age and memory. It seems to me one of the few positives, few positives of ageing, is living long enough to learn the historical truth of what we've lived through. In the jargon, lived experience meets the historical record. And it is intriguing to read the record of your times and see how much we knew, how we you know, lived in a glass darkly. Well, we now have this deeply scholarly book with new evidence upon our history as a university and which illuminates the past really in very original and significant ways. And it's, it's written by scholars who, um, who are able to draw in deep ways from the archives but also have an awareness and understanding of the institution. Um, Julia is our university historian and nobody knows our archives and records better than Julia and has offered us already with Jeff Sherrington a really excellent general history of our university. Stephen has been with us forever, is still young, but I well recall Stephen arriving as a lecturer. Right here. Well, that's what happens to young around here. Senior lecturer, senior lecturer, uh, head of a department, a, certainly a dean or a dean at different stages in there and now of course our university provost so between them they bring a special skills and perception understanding to writing about the topic like this and they've really offered us I think a superb narrative which is a kind of inside critique of the inner workings of our institution through the crucial 
Dawkins' decade. It's very empathetic, but it has its own critical stance with shrewd assessments, it seems to me, based on comprehensive archival examinations and a sense of where things led thereafter. There's a balancing of the knowledge of the legacy with the changes themselves. <clears throat> I think the book in particular, I really enjoyed it, and I, I thought it had two special qualities that I would commend to you. One is its very empathetic and nuanced assessment of the leadership. It's an essentially positive perspective on the management of the challenges faced by the Vice-Chancellor today, John Manning Ward. His liberal conservatism offered stability and a good sense uh, amid power, power politics in the, the nation at large, but also th there were indeed some politics within our own institution, among Senate, among staff, in faculty and so on. And I think John's calm and reasoned approach was a kind of negative capability, to use Coleridge's famous phrase. He never inflamed tensions while still arguing the case for his practical policies. And it also comes from the book that this, the changes did not just simply begin uh, with Dawkins. There's a very important sense of recognising the post-war era, particularly in the 1970s. Uh, I came here in, in the end of the 70s and people were still talking about the change from the professorial board to the academic board and a range of other changes which were being put in place and then alongside that there was the desire on the part of this administration that is the, the ward administration to begin to modernize the university with an interest in devolved faculties and producing a less centralized kind of institution one which was more academically um, based so those things were already there and I think that's important to point out that we don't just see draw a line across this and a number of you who, who are here today Today, we're actually part of that process of change and you can recognize and speak to that. I think it's also important to say that this kind of recent past is not just a foreign country but for many who live in the universities today it's forgotten country. The pre-Dawkins University is in fact sometimes hard to imagine. When I arrived as a somewhat young ch chalice professor, I think it was July 1980, we were by today's standards a relatively small and traditional university. 20% of today's enrolments at, at most. Uh, no overseas fee-paying students other than the study abroad that we had. We were a single campus university, um, apart from vet science out of Camden. Professional, prof professorial leadership and culture was really a key feature of the university. And when we had a big debate, and some of you may remember the many memorable Senate-like debates we had about reforming the academic board. One of the great issues about the size of the board, when we said, well, we need to have representatives of all the sections and classes, the reason we couldn't remove the professors from the academic board en masse was that they were there not only as delegated under regulations to manage, but they were intended to be disciplined leaders. And so the argument was very much, if you remove the professors, what would the, would the academic board still be an academic board? I, I remember, I can't remember the date, I was certainly on a working group that went off boldly to change the academic board. Some of us thought it would be a good idea to have a board which was like an assembly, and we'd gather and debate the way we always did in that room. But also we would have more of a, a kind of core, core um, group who would meet to do the regular business of the board. And I thought that would be a reasonable comp I hadn't come to understand the University of Sydney that was out, that was management and that was small groups etc. So we moved to reform, the board was then 275. So you might say it was open to a little reform. Well the reforms actually took it up to about 330. So we, it, it was happily received but I think the, the end result was not quite what we intended. Um, the university uh, had its own ways of oper operating and its management systems were intriguing. In, in the arts faculty, humanities, where we're always open to a more interesting and laconic view of the world, the view was that the university worked a little bit like a medieval court, which is who you knew and the patronage and linkages. In the history division, uh, in the humanities, we had, a, had another kind of view. Some of us actually thought we were more like the Austro-Habsburg Empire, and we were not the Austrians. The Austrians were in medicine, engineering and one, maybe law was borderline, we thought that was a border zone but that's where the action was 
Uh, and the rest of us, we were in the Hungarian end. A series of, sort of warring ethnic groups who constantly had to be cajoled and moved along by the Austrians. That was our view, and it, uh, well, I don't say it's a serious social science model, although it has uh, some sense of uh, social texture to it. We only had, and John, we only had one generalist deputy vice-chancellor, Michael Taylor, who chaired what I loved was called the Committee with a Long Name. It was the operational committee which pulled everything in and we all gathered there together. It was a great name. And it was a university that was remarkably uh, centralised. One stage when we needed a, a le new lectureship in the department to, to, to obtain it, I was finally sent to see the vice-chancellor who sat behind the desk in the old office with a filing system with a card. And each of us had a card, and he pulled out the card, not only in history, but this particular person. So we, we talked about this card, and then the trick you watched with the vice chancellor when putting it down would initial it. If you initialed, you got the job. If you didn't initial, it just simply went back in. We were that sort of centralized. Uh, and an example that people will not believe, we used to type exam papers on... Um, on wax sheets to, to reproduce them and we didn't have enough typewriters to get a typewriter to type I had to write the deputy vice chancellor to ask if we could have one or two typewriters just for the period of the examinations they kindly allowed us but we, uh, we, were, we had to assure them when we bring, bring it back the registrar was seen to be all knowing and very powerful and the academic board took a great interest in a great many things and Monday afternoon, once a month, was a, a kind of entertainment sport occasion where people would attend to challenge the, the Vice-Chancellor who rather enjoyed it. And so speeches were made which were well prepared and had Latin quips in them. It was a rich occasion. Deans in those were large, days were largely elected and sabbatical leaves could go over a whole year or more. The university was funded, of course, not directly by the government but by a commission which would come and visit us and ask us about our needs for the year to come, and we would debate what we, what we actually wanted from CTEC. Research was very much devolved, we had small grants in the university, and there was the Australian Research Grants Committee, which I found myself on at one stage, and I found us touring Australia, and we met every single candidate for a grant in the 19 universities. It was an extraordinary way of knowing the research, how different when we changed. And also charmingly, I thought, as I was new to Sydney and came from another place, I was intrigued that when I got out the train uh, downtown at Central, there was a bus that just simply said, the university. And I knew I could simply get on that and be taken to my classes. <clears throat> then came, in a sense, the Dawkins deluge. That's the sort of background where these 19 smaller universities became 38 increasingly large institutions with a minimum size of 8,000. So we'd only just scraped in. We were about 12,000 when I came here, with about 10 to 12% of the Australian population having a higher qualification or degree. So it was, this was, these were small sectors, a very elite kind of sectors. And we were now all amalgamated what was to be called unified national system and which many soon be referred to as the uniform national system as it was very much run through a, bit, a major, very large department in, uh, in Canberra. We got post-graded fee payers, private providers popped up, mass higher education came under a centralised act uh, which was rigorously enforced, there was formal quality assurance, uh, the research clawback moved a lot of money from us into the Australian Research Council, Hex and fee help arrived in different stages, uh, full fee paying students turned up and now it's what, our third largest export, 23 billion from those tiny beginnings. Entrepreneurial policies were really encouraged and commercial arms appeared and generally a kind of internationalization push was really on. It was an age of national reconstruction in a very significant way as we know for the, the, the community at large. I mean, who can forget the day when we floated the dollar? And who can forget the new industrial policies where industries were actually closed? Money was placed into new areas of, um, of manufacture and research. And universities were caught up in that move to a kind of modernization. We were not, some people thought we were just being picked on. But I think the remark that John Dawkins saw us as the last of the unreformed sectors, I think that's just about caught where we sat in a spectrum of reform. A green paper appeared, which uh, very soon turned into a white paper and the joke of how do you turn a green paper into white paper you just pop it into a Xerox machine um, but we had all had our views and we'd been thoroughly agitated by uh, what was in the, the paper 
although there wasn't any clear sense of how this, the sector was actually to respond to the Green Paper. We didn't produce our own separate um, statement. What, what did happen was a series of critiques were offered in different ways of different papers as they affected your university. So there was indeed a rush to change but also a concern of where it was all going to go and quite soon at the end with the amalgamations there came burst into life a new kind of sector itself I had some some cameos, memory cameos come back to me about that time I remember walking in the corridors and some of my colleagues actually saying how can they do this to us what right do they have who do they think they are and I had to say well they're actually the democratically elected government of a federation that we come under a state act and this is public policy so it was it's, it's up to us to influence it but that's the, that's the context of also we, we were introduced for the first time to the idea in hex of public benefit and private gain this had not been there before this was a new and, and, and this led to tremendous I can remember a very stormy meeting in the history common room where very many, many of us got very agitated about this the abolition of the ARGC and its replacement by the Research Council also caused no end of a stir. I was on the ARGC and I remember going to a series of meetings where we wondered how this, with the, with the clawback work, how we were in fact going to ensure um, a range of research continued in the institutions. There was also quality assurance suddenly popped up. I was at the academic board when somebody said, well what is quality assurance? And I was sent, I can, I'm not sure by whom, I was sent to a meeting in uh, Adelaide where quality assurance was explained to us by the leading proponent, Professor Ian Chubb from the University of Wollongong. And he explained that it's not anything to frighten, but you just tell us about yourself and what you're doing well, and we will give you feedback and comment. And then the question was asked, is there money attached? And so that was slightly got off on it. But that was, that was the sense that we had of trying to come to grips with a, a new kind of world. This volume captures all this in a, a penetrating way just how it unfolded and how in the university it was actually debated a lot of the book is about that debate and how the leadership from the Vice-Chancellor the Senate, the Deans and others came to hold the positions they did it gives us a very convincing account and it also left me with a series of questions um, which I just throw out, six enduring questions which arise from reading this wonderfully scholarly book one is, other than a tactical pragmatism, what was actually the Sydney strategy through it all? Was it fully grasped that while more students meant more funding, there was no special multiplier per student? Because the argument often being made at the time was we need to get bigger in the amalgamation because they'd give us more students. We're already the biggest university in Australia. We had 16,000. Today, minuscule, but that was large then. And this question of retaining our position was talked about a lot, and it was endlessly debated about how big this would be a good thing. Um, the next nagging thought was why, and this is part of a sort of kind of mythology about the change, why did the university ultimately not take up the now legendary almost mythical um, approach of the Melbourne University's Vice-Chancellor David Pennington to form a powerful block the two leading research universities to challenge the minister's transformation strategy, especially over state controls. And that's an interesting one which is dealt with, but it's, it's still an issue. A lot of people talk about that. And then beyond the Sydney-Melbourne access issue, I sometimes wondered why there was not an alternative Sydney vision to build strength through research concentrations, graduate culture and international linkages. Staying elite, but also enhancing the structure and budgeting of the institution. It's interesting that the next Vice-Chancellor's administration, that of Don McNichol, actually began to move towards professional uh, fee-paying graduate courses and looking to some of the other kinds of strategies of building. So the, the ideas were around, but it, it, was not, it was not the preferred option in the Dawkins area. And then I suppose there's the interesting question of what does the private record tell us about the Sydney strategy in dealing with Minister Dawkins he often said, it was remarked, that he was surprised that the, he was not challenged more strenuously by the universities individually or as a, as a, as a, as a sector. And that, that remains, I think, an interesting and open question. I've also sort of sometimes wondered, did the university leadership ever regret lost opportunities 
when negotiating the Dawkins reforms, because in many of the, of the issues there was room for discussion and debate at the beginning. The trouble was many of the universities were now rivaling each other to succeed within the framework, and that meant a diffusion of effort. Ultimately, because the book is evocatively entitled Preserving the Past, I think there's a really interesting question about ultimately how well did Sydney University actually preserve its past by embracing the scale of the changes which it did at that particular time. It changed and it later was to flourish. But there really is, I think, a really interesting question of debate as to um, how, and, how and why uh, various changes preserved past and others actually pushed it, the, the heritage tradition of the university further into the past. That's enough from me. Uh, I'd like now to invite uh, Julia to speak on her dimension of this book and then we'll turn it over to, to Stephen who will be historian and prophet at one and the same moment. Julia, thank you. Welcome. So, thank you very much, Derek, for that very generous and um, prolific, I mean, excursion down memory lane. Uh, just to warn you, I'll be talking a bit longer than Stephen because Stephen is a busy provost and that's how um, we thought we'd handle it. But uh, we're going to have a nice big chunk of question time at the end. Um, I should also mention that our work on, Dawkin, on the Dawkins reforms in Sydney was part of an ARC discovery project grant with the University of Melbourne um, and that that project has, as Derek said, now published four books one each on Melbourne, uh, University of South Australia, Griffith, and now Sydney, with the National History being published later this year. Well, the other person who I want to acknowledge is also Michael Goodman, who's here um, in this room, who did a lot of the research for um, this book um, in the archives. Tim Robinson, Nairi, and also Karen, who are the archivists here, and you know, without them, this book could not have been written. I, you know, they, they all gave tremendous help in um, actually getting the records opened. So um, because of the way um, archives are handled in New South Wales, we had to open records to actually get to look at them to write the history. So we uh, want to thank all those people tremendously. Now last year, a historian from a Japanese university interviewed me about the Dawkins reforms. He was beginning a PhD on the recent history of Australia's university system. So we made our introductions, we settled down to begin the interview, and at that point I couldn't restrain myself any longer. I just had to know why a Japanese academic saw the Dawkins era as revelatory in the recent international modern history of higher education. Quite extraordinary, I thought. But his answer plunged me into one of those defining back-of-your-head moments. Slightly surprised at my question, he explained gently and considerately that didn't I know it was well known amongst Japanese academics of higher education that in fact Australian universities as public institutions were really fascinating subjects of study and that his own supervisor had shepherded him into this uh, study because he thought it would be illuminating and um, you know, very worthy of an in-depth study. So little did you know. But fortified by this confidence, I thought today I'd briefly explore how the Dawkins reforms, as they played out here, between 1988 and 96, affected, even disturbed, the idea of the University of Sydney. Now, of course, all universities like to cultivate a distinctiveness. It might derive from particular institutional practices, collegial and student cultures, or often a historical sense of themselves, often shaped by permeable social memory rather than good historical practice, it should be acknowledged, but certainly one that's carried down the generation. So let me begin with some basic information about Sydney during the period from 1988, when the Dawkins white paper was obviously photocopied, <laughs> um, was anyway, when it was finalised, and 1996, when the institutional changes were largely complete. 
first within this profound period of change when the very structure of the university was undergoing enormous transformation, Sydney had not one Vice-Chancellor but two during this period. The first, as Derek uh, pointed out, was John Manning Ward, a historian, and you, know, you might call him a true Sydney University man, who did all his degrees at Sydney, was appointed lecturer in 1944, becoming professor in 1949, and then in the decades that followed, marched up the executive ranks to become vice-chancellor in 1981. And he remained in that position until his very early 70s, in order to orchestrate amalgamation opportunities. He retired in 1990, and the next Vice-Chancellor, Dom McNichol, was not a Sydney man. He assumed office after, in 1990 after the amalgamation negotiations had been all but finalised, so a bit like someone coming to the party as the host packs up the glasses. But of course it became his responsibility to ensure the amalgamations worked and that's what Stephen will speak about shortly. Other basic statistical information indicates really the extent of these changes. By 1996, Sydney had incorporated six former CAE <coughs> institutions. It had increased its full-time equivalent academic staff by 33% and its student load by 59%. So let's compare that to the national figures. And that's a very different picture. Across the nation, most amalgamations with established universities took on fewer CAEs than Sydney six. For example, Melbourne only took on four. Um, it had, nationally, universities had only a 7% increase in the number of academic staff. Sydney had 33%, Melbourne had 4% and a 49% increase in student load compared to Sydney's 59. So in other words, Sydney had taken on more than perhaps it needed to and a consequence of what we in the book argue was the combination of an aggressive education policy of the New South Wales Education Minister Terry Metherill and Ward's assertive belief despite certain, he had reservations, of course, but nonetheless it was, we think, quite an assertive belief that amalgamation was actually in the best interests of the university. In addition, the number of academic organisational units at Sydney increased from 11 to 16 faculties, and they were now distributed across five new campuses. So by this stage, Sydney had seven campuses, and those campuses stretch from some hundreds of kilometres, from Sydney's Harbour Foreshore to Roselle, Lidcombe and out to Orange in the Central Tablelands. So we can see just through those statistics how the University of 1996 in size, shape and mass was very different from that of a decade earlier. Now, John Dawkins. He made a statement to Parliament on the 22nd of September 1987, which he entitled The Challenge of Higher Education in Australia. He saw the challenge in socio-economic terms. Australia, as primarily an export nation, you know, wool, particularly minerals, had increasingly unstable economic foundations and they were beginning to be expressed in high youth unemployment. He wanted universities to help shape the new industrial economy, to nurture world-class research and to produce more university graduates than ever before as part of a workforce refocused on industrial and manufacturing innovation. Over the next year, he, his ministerial advisers and the curiously named Purple Circle devised and prepared the policy which became the Dawkins White Paper, with very little consultations with universities. That's the point, I think. Now, these reforms aimed to dismantle the binary system of university and colleges of advanced education, which had been established in the, it's about to say, 1860s, but 100 years later, and to replace it with a unified national system of reconstituted universities that would expand the number of university places, create greater diversity and equity. That was very much in the, um, you know, emphasised by Dawkins in his white paper. 
um, and also achieve economies of scale. So with the policy paper in place in 1988 and the negotiations left to the state ministers of education, a peculiarity being that all these universities had been established by state acts, not under Commonwealth, not actually legally under Commonwealth control, so that if they were going to be changed, they had to be changed by the states. Vice-chancellors were really only left with three options. To applaud the changes, which a number did. To complain about them, which a number did. Or, as um, of course they ended up all having to do, to get on with the task of making something work. Now, John Ward initially chose the line of complaint, but I think it was actually quite cautious complaint. But still, we'll just go through his reservations. The first was he really feared, uh, as did people like David Pennington at Melbourne, increased bureaucratic and ministerial supervision of universities that would, he believed, curtail universities as world-class academic institutions. He also feared increasing uniformity and loss of distinctiveness and believed that a unified system would create a commonplace mediocrity. Finally, he feared the consequences of these things called profile negotiations, whereby universities agreed with government on the range of subjects and research areas to be offered and so were funded as a consequence. And of course, he believed that this threatened the long-term investment of universities in basic research as well as innovative teaching. Yet despite these fears, he was actually very moderate in his public criticism. And over the months of 1988, Ward began to mount a case within the university that the uh, university, sorry, unified national scheme, um, system rather, was inevitable. And most importantly, not to adapt. That's what imposed a greater risk. Whenever the tide of internal opposition intensified, he began to stress the benefits rather than affirm those fears. And in hindsight, I think it's a technique that probably helped stem the tide of internal opposition. We need to remember that at other universities, quite a lot of them, staff were casting votes of no confidence in their vice-chancellors, but not at Sydney. In fact, he was fearless in the face of opposition. There's this lovely story about Leonie Kramer. Now, when Leonie Kramer, who we know is Professor of Australian Literature since 1968, so she wasn't yet Chancellor of the University, and of course a formidable figure within the university, she went along to see Ward and privately urged him to boycott the government's proposal. He countered that Sydney was the best university in the country. Um, I'm sure Leonie Cranor wouldn't disagree with that. But since the unified national system would reward size, it should also be the largest. For Cranor, of course, large was not necessarily great, quite the opposite in her view, and she was shown the door. Now, Ward argued that he agreed with three of the four main pillars of the government's reform proposals. So he agreed that a strongly growing higher education system should occur. That was primary. Also, he agreed that there should be improved levels of efficiency throughout the system, as well as guarantees of teaching and research standards. It was only the increased powers for the minister the Commonwealth Minister and the lack of independent skilled advice to the Commonwealth Government that he could not countenance. So, how did these Dawkins reforms disturb the idea of the University of Sydney? First, the reforms came up against Sydney's traditional power structures, which Derek has um, you know, encountered from his own personal experience when he arrived here. Ward described these structures as the Sydney collegiate style of management, a style of administration that went back for many, many de decades and seemed to be, to be accepted by most academics as the best way to run a group of scholars. So faculty deans were elected by faculty members, mirroring the scholarly ideal of community rather than have positions grubbily advertised and appointments made by faceless committees. The academic board 
though recently reformed to its 275 and then 320 <laughs> people um, from its, anyway, it was recently reformed from its previous incarnation as the professorial board, um, was still enormous, as Derek has indicated, and so was really more a forum for debate rather than the sleek decision-making academic bodies that were emerging elsewhere. And finally, the, uh, this collegiate style of management had the vice-chancellor at the helm, and along with the Chancellor, we often forget that that's actually a very important um, relationship in the running of a university, steered the ship through fair weather and foul. Secondly, the emphasis in Dawkins' reforms on diversity and equity barely raised a ripple of attention in debates about the Dawkins' reforms at Sydney. It also didn't I mean, it raised it in other universities, but there were some, like Melbourne and so forth, where I think it also didn't really grab the attention of, of um, people concerned about these other sorts of issues of independence. And it's interesting from Sydney's perspective, because whereas throughout its first century, Sydney, unlike Melbourne, had seriously considered the question of how to extend educational franchise across religious, social and gender boundaries, in the late 1980s, there was barely a whisper on how, the, on how the Dawkins reforms might actually now assist some such ambitions. It's not to say that there weren't discussions about some of these issues within the university, but not as a consequence of the Dawkins reforms. Yet within the white paper, there was a whole section which actually wanted to really see this as driving those reforms uh, those issues forward. Um, elsewhere in Australia, some universities were actually embedding the ideals of diversity and equity into their foundational acts of parliament. So there were, it, you know, something that just didn't, I think, happen at that, to that extent here. Thirdly, the reforms essentially discarded the idea of the scholar. There was to be no longer a comfortable place for scholars in the modern university. As part of the reforms, the Australian Research Council was established in order to funnel research funds to you know, these research starts. And worse, these decisions would no longer be made by the university as they had been through the previous period of block grants, but centrally in a room in Canberra, if by um, you know, peers around the nation. So the era of the competitive research grant had arrived and the researcher, a term once used to describe that person who sat in a back room somewhere crunching data and rarely saw the light, was now to become the superstar of you know, the modern university and, of course, the scholar, thus becoming a thing of the past. So finally, Sydney, which had been the largest university in Australia, was now to become even greater, as I indicated at the beginning. So the era of the mass university, initially established in post-war Australia and which Sydney was a flagship, had spe spectacularly arrived here. But I think with not much thought as to what that would mean for students, for staff and for the public at large. So at that point, I'll pass on to my partner in crime uh, who'll talk a bit about the McNichol era. Thank you. So my first day of work as a staff member at this university was the 30th of November 1987 and a week later John Dawkins issued um, his green paper and um, life has been interesting ever since. And for some strange reason that I still can't quite come to terms with, um, I um, occasionally offered my um, services to various committees from a very early age and so from 1990 I was kind of on committees uh, on committees with uh, many people in this room so actually um, I'd like to acknowledge that I learnt a huge amount uh, from active mentors like Roz and Paul uh, who really did um, play a crucial role in shaping me but many of you in just observing how you operated in this incredibly complex institution. So if anything is going wrong with the university president, it's all your fault. <laughs> so as Julia said, we arrive um, in 1990 and um, John Ward um, 
hands over the baton to a new um, vice-chancellor. He'd been desperate to get out of the vice-chancellor's role all along, or so he, he admitted in, or wrote, um, but when Dawkins arrived, um, he, he thought, I've got to stay the course and get, us, get the university through. But he certainly wasn't going to stay on to implement. He was in his 70s. Um, he'd been writing to friends from the mid-1980s saying, I can't wait till I retire so I can get back to writing books. It was handed on to Don McNichol. And as Julia said, Don McNichol was a very different kettle of fish. He wasn't a Sydney person. Um, he had been involved in Commonwealth um, senior bureaucratic management in the Department of Education. He'd been the Vice-Chancellor at the University of New England. He arrives in 1990. He's got five new institutions to amalgamate and later on a sixth one. And it's, as many in this room will know, is an enormously complex set of issues and lots of committees had to be established. What were the titles going to be for the academics that came from the amalgamating institutions? What would be the pay rates? Uh, what would, how we would, how would we define what constituted a research active academic? Because there was a sort of imperative to um, bring these institutions into the university, not change the university. They had to come into the, our culture, um, not rethink um, the culture of um, the university more generally. Of course, Derek's always um, Derek's referred to the memory bit, and for me, it's a kind of complex set of issues here because um, I'm here as a historian, looking back and reading the archives and looking at with eyes 30 years past, but also putting that together with my memories of what was going on at the time and the kind of difference of perspective of age, decrepitude, um, and experience, kind of. Put, put a frame around some of the questions for me in writing up particularly the McNichol years. I'd have to say my memory uh, was of a time of great difficulty and um, the university sort of uh, spinning wheels and not getting anywhere. Uh, and, um, and what the hell were they doing up there at the top? Uh, Going back to the archives and reading the documents in um, much greater detail and getting a sense of perspective and now having the perspective of understanding how difficult it is uh, to manage um, or mismanage universities. Um, it gave me an, a, a very acute sense that actually McNichol came with some very um, important ideas um, he did want to modernise the University of Sydney. He did think reform was essential. He did think that the university needed to adapt very quickly to a rapidly changing set of higher education circumstances. I mean, Dawkins is changing the nature of the entire um, Australian university system, as Julie's explained, the birth of the researcher and so on and so forth, the mass university. And Dawkins himself admits now he's really puzzled by the fact that uh, the essentials of the current university system we have in Australia was formed in, through his green paper and white paper and he's really puzzled that we haven't changed it. Mm. He said, well, it was fit for purpose in the late 80s, early 90s, but it can't surely be fit for purpose now. And I, I just think that tells us something quite illuminating about the public policy crisis in Canberra of the last 10 years, the complete inability to, for Canberra to come to terms with the reality of the modern university system and think through the issues. So we're essentially living with a model that was developed 30 years ago and we haven't changed the fundamentals. We've fiddled around the edges and the fundamentals, even for Dawkins, have changed so much. Um, we need new policy prescriptions. So Don's coming in with a whole series of um, ideas about um, where do we get our revenue from, um, what are the student populations we should be dealing with, how can we co promote research in this new research environment when the ARC is distributing money on a competitive environment. The institution's now very large, much larger, by 1996, um, 16 faculties. How can you manage 16 faculties? Um, and of course he brings in, uh, is one of the first univers uh, university vice chancellors to bring in that dreaded 
um, uh, technique of the external consultant um, of very high money. And ours was the um, Boston, colloquially known the Boston Stranglers. And they, of course, came in and said, you do this and you do that and you amalgamate this and you create this committee and you restructure that. And, of course, that um, a lot of time was spent on thinking through the academic organisation and creating groups which then eventually, and divisions uh, to bring those faculties together and get a bit more coherence. So I, from my perspective, I can now see the kind of sense of what he was dealing with and the kind of issues that he, complex issues that he was grappling with. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with the um, solutions he proposed, but I can now see that there was a, a genuine rationale and a genuine um, exploration of complex issues to try and create an institution that was undergoing a great deal of stress from a sig very significant expansion in the number of institutional silos, the number of students, the number of staff and the number of campuses. Not an easy thing to grapple with. The other thing that's given me pause for reflection um, in working on this book is, you know, in the 1990s as a, you know, a lecturer and senior lecturer and associate professor in the university, I thought vice-chancellors, senates, you know, nonsense, don't need to know what's happening there. The real work happens at the coalface. And of course that's absolutely right. Universities are absolutely magnificently resilient institutions where it doesn't matter how bad senior management is, um, the academics still do fantastic teaching and still do fantastic research. And that is one of the most marvellous things about universities, that despite it all, they still continue to do um, brilliant work. Um, and we need to nurture and cherish that uh, as much as we can. But senior management does make a difference, I've decided, reflecting on this. <laughs> one of the things that is, I think, one of the great tragedies of this institution is that the 90, 1990s turned out to be a period of incredible conflict at the top. So the new Vice-Chancellor comes in with a significant reform agenda and Dame Leone's elected um, Chancellor with a significant anti-reform agenda, uh, hence the preserving the past. Um, actually, I have respect for bo both viewpoints. I could well understand the viewpoint that you wanted to protect the essential character of the institution and there was something precious in the idea of the university, the traditional idea of the university. But circumstances were changing and governments hold the purse strings and they were changing the public policy framework. So did you adapt or did you resist? It's one of those classic questions that played around. And what our problem was, not one side versus the other, our problem was that we had a vice-chancellor who um, had one set of beliefs and a chancellor who had another set of beliefs and so the entire institution was consumed with that at the top levels, consumed with that battle. In other words, we were totally inward looking, totally consumed with um, political battles on Senate about um, the future of the institution and whether it should go that way or that way. And, a and of course, Don McNichol lost in this and interesting stories that I couldn't put in the book about why he lost. Um, the toilet. Um, no, I won't go give you that anecdote, but it is an important one. Um, that consumed, consumed a lot of energy um, and meant that we were not looking at how to take the university forward, but battling over the essentials. And of course, when um, Don McNichol knew that his number was up and immediately jumped to the University of Tasmania, Gavin Brown's appointed, but the, then the um, Senate decided to consume itself with um, getting rid of Dame Leone. And so we had kind of 10, 12, 13, 14 years of internal battles at the, high, uh, at the highest level and didn't focus on what we needed to deliver for staff and students to improve their conditions. And the, con the interesting contrast, and it's kind of an, a, a sub-theme in the book, is this is the moment where Melbourne takes off 
Sydney is way ahead of Melbourne in the 1970s by a very significant margin. And yet by the mid-1990s, Melbourne is shooting ahead and Sydney is um, sort of caught in stasis because of its internal conflicts. Um, now you can have different views on what Pennington did, but the outcome was that Melbourne shot ahead in a whole range of ways. I'll give you just one crucial um, indicator of one of the indicators of, state, of stasis, why we consumed ourselves with these internal battles. This university did not build a single building between 1979 and 1993, and between 1993 and 2003 only built the education building. In our 20 years of almost no investment in the teaching and research infrastructure of the institution at the time when Melbourne's really transforming the whole of Parkville into a complex um, uh, research um, space and teaching space. Um, so a series of serious underinvestments um, that have been holding back the university for a long time. I mean, you know, we're in significant catch-up mode. So the whole range of ways in which those conflicts those things that are irrelevant and should be irrelevant to the daily life of researchers and scholars actually have a profound impact on the life and outcomes and directions of the institution. So um, I've come to the um, bizarre conclusion that governance does matter. Um, and governance is kind of important. Um, and I've become much more interested in issues of governance um, in my current role um, as a consequence of reflections on the fact that governance failures can not destroy teaching and research, but can stop it reaching its full flowering. And given the quality of the staff and students we have, um, that's a kind of indictment of the institution that we um, didn't destroy, but we stultified some of the potential and one of the aspirations we must have as an institution is trying to move forward and try and um, bring our governance into um, a line that it delivers on what is essential to the institution, which is teaching and research, and not be so inward-looking but outward-looking um, for um, all of our what we call stakeholders, but staff and students and alumni and the people nationally and internationally that we um, develop our relationships with.